Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Simon Lloyd, the newly appointed Chief Creative Officer at Dentsu McGarry Bowen. And Simon brings with him a decade of experience from Adam and Eve DDB, where he supervised such campaigns as the John Lewis Christmas campaign. And Simon is hoping to achieve similar success for DMB. Simon, thanks for joining me. And how busy are you at the moment on a scale of one to John Hegarty? <laughs> I will put it on a scale of one to ten. I would say it's, it's an it is definitely an eleven, but I I do feel that saying you're busy is a bit of a cliche, so I try to avoid it. So I I, I generally I, I tend to go with I'm spread thin versus busy. But um, yeah, go on. So you are now at Dentsu, and what? was the reason for the jump over to there from Adam and Eve? One of the reasons I was interested in that is because, you know, last year was reported as the year of the startup, the year of new commercial arts and smaller places like that. What, and obviously new commercial arts is Murphy and Golding, your old, um, from your old shop. What, what, what caused you to go to, you know, the next step up almost in terms of size of organisation? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, that's a big question. There's lots of different factors, I think. I wanted to go somewhere where I could, I'm just going to turn this off. Sorry, do you want to repose? I'm just going to turn this off so we don't get this all the way through. It's all right, I can chop stuff out. Okay, fine. Um, there were lots of motivating factors, actually. Um, I wanted to own something, develop something, shape something uh, in more of my own vision, um, which... Um, it initially led me to smaller places, startups, if you like, um, and I did go and approach. I did go and talk to lots of startups, um, and then Dentsu came about. And what's interesting with Dentsu is that the London operation really is a startup. It's about thirty people, forty people, very small, but with some significant clients, and then the backing of a pretty joined-up network. So it almost had the best of both worlds. So small enough to mould and grow some decent accounts that are great, but probably need to be more creative and the work probably needs to be better. But then with the support of a, of a network, which is Japanese by origin and, you know, nearly 150 years old and with huge kind of backgrounds in things like technology and media um, and with big ambitions with Wendy Clark coming in to grow the creative products, it just seemed like a little bit of an alignment of the stars, if I'm honest. And with London wanting, with the ambition for London to become um, one of the centres of creative excellence um, and me kind of um, spearheading that and trying to build a team around me that can help deliver it was... Um, so it's a, it, a lot of factors, I think. Um, and I think the security of a of a density versus a startup that just sits there uh, on its own and uh, isolated and um, uh, independent, it feels slightly less risky. That's really good, uh, certainly picking up on the first point that it sounds like it's the uh, creative's dream. You know, you get the agility and the, what would you call it, the opportunity to shape things that you would with a startup, but you've got all the backing of this 150-year-old entity. So it's quite an exciting time, but I'm interested to know about some of these, you know, you said you've got some accounts that you're excited to be generating new ideas for and new creative. Have you got anything you can tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, so what's bizarre is that you'll know one of them in an American with American Express, which is absolutely enormous and, you know, has been around for a long time, but is going through a, a bit of a, a change in um, the way that people perceive it because effectively it's been a almost like a club 
right? You you go there and you get rewards for spending money through them. Um, but a lot of the younger generation don't really want that anymore. And there's a lot of competition for small, independent and um, financial solutions. So they're going through a bit of a transition. But um, Andy, the, the main client over in the US, has got big ambitions for the work to be better, which is why I've hired Paul Cohen to kind of really help me move on that creative product. He's a colleague that I used to work with at, at uh, Adam and Eve DDB. He's a real force and he's going to help shift all of that on. And then you've got Asahi, which is a Japanese beer, which when you're in a Japanese network and you've got a Japanese product, it's just, um, it's, it's begging for some great work. It's really, the, the packaging, you look at the packaging of the bottle and it's really, really cool. But it's almost cool by default versus the work that you've seen for it. So we've now got to pr- produce some work, which actually makes it um, talk in a, uh, in a way that is becoming, I guess, of the brand that it currently is. So that's, we're currently working on that at the moment. Then we've got a, a big insurance company. It's the biggest insurance company in the world called Generali. And if you live in the UK, you won't have heard of it. But if you're anywhere else in Europe or the rest of the world, it is the, um, the insurance company. They are um, everywhere and they've got big ambitions to cut through and they call themselves the red in this blue sea of kind of financial insurance companies. So that's got massive potential. Um, and then the one I've been working on today, actually, is this one called DAZN, D-A-Z-N, which is a sports streaming service. Yeah. Now, they are massive in Germany. They're really big in Japan. Not so big in the UK, but they've got ambitions to become effectively the Netflix of sport. And with an ambition as big as that, and with the beginnings of, we're now um, developing a new brand campaign for them at the moment. And the clients are really, really ambitious, very um, brave. They want to cut through. They know they've got to cut through. Um, uh, and if we can get the works match up to that, in 10 years' time, I think they will be the kind of company that will really rival the skies of this world, which I think is um, it's an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah, this is all really exciting, surely for you as, as you know the incumbent CCO as well, because it sounds like the picture of things there is you have four, I think we mentioned four brands there that uh, are just not particularly famous in this market. We know Amex is famous, right? But like you said, you're presented with uh not you're not you're not taking things that are already household names and already well established in the ad market. So is that somewhat daunting when you're kind of carrying all of them at once, you know, while still being exciting? And look, yeah, I mean I'm not going to compare um any of those to a John Lewis, but when we when I first started at Adam and Eve, John Lewis wasn't known for Christmas. Yes. Right. And I've seen that journey. I've seen what brands can go on. I've seen what agencies' journeys look like. And um, I mean, many brands try and replicate the success of John Lewis. But when you can see the transformation and now that brand just owns Christmas, they are, they are the brand that just um, everybody else tries to... If, if anybody could even get close to that, then, then, then you'd be happy. I mean, the John Lewis ad became, I was like uh, 19 when those started becoming cultural events and it felt like the Super Bowl at one point. Do you remember, you remember the particular year, I think it was 2014, when it was a war between the Sainsbury's World War One trenches ad and the John Lewis ad? Yeah. Uh, how, how did you do that? Or, you know, how, how was it done? One word, I think, emotion. Okay. Um, and it was a great relationship. You know, we've talked about the four founding partners of Adam and Eve. Uh, so John, Ben, David and James. Uh, just had a great relationship, have a great relationship with Crave and the vision of the client and the vision of the agency to effectively um, hit people with emotion in advertising haven't really, really been done before. 
Um, and it actually didn't happen for Christmas. It actually happened with Always a Woman, which is the little girl in the red dress who grows up. That was the one that the, the papers coined as being the ad that made the nation cry. And then Emotion for Christmas then came off that. There was actually a couple of um, Christmas ads that nobody really remembers, but that didn't really deliver on the emotion. But it was the long wait that um, was the little boy waiting for Christmas Day and you think he's waiting to open his presents. He's not, he's waiting to give one. That was the turning point. And then every year in the creative department, you just, every year there's 300 scripts all trying to beat it year after year after year. Um, and you're right, it is like the Super Bowl. But the issue, the difference is with the Super Bowl, there are many brands all competing for the limelight. Whereas for John Lewis, they're the one to beat. And if they get it wrong, then um, then you you know about it. And um, if you get it right, equally so. Um, so it's... Um, it's a tough thing to do. Um, and I, I think especially during COVID when Christmas was at that very peculiar point, I think they actually played it very well by doing good. Um, and a lot of the work that was around the campaign um, that happened this, this last Christmas was actually great at kind of not just saying it, but doing it as well. And I think that was a really, that was really well, well played. Um, but Craig's no longer there anymore. Um, so there's this new wave, these new clients that are coming in. Um, so, fit of the audience who might not know who's Craig. Craig English is the ex marketing director of, of of John Lewis, um, and he was um, very closely, just very closely worked with all the all the um, the four founding partners, and and in later years, Rick and Tammy and Goffey, uh, Rick Brim being my old boss, mm-hmm. um, at developing that great emotional work, and not just TV actually, right the way through the line. Um, and it was a great partnership, and they're going through a new a new change at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues, how it continues. It's interesting, isn't it? Because John Lewis are maybe the example of the kind of chain that are really up against it after COVID, because uh, they are still primarily an in-store experience. Uh, what's going to happen for people like that? What's going to happen for those brands? It's going to be fascinating, right? It's much bigger than just John Lewis. It's the whole um, physicality of the high street, physicality of offices, just in general. Um, we had a. Uh, an email sent around earlier talking about our office plan um, for when perhaps we do go back this summer. And you sit there and think, maybe we don't all need to be sitting in rows looking at laptops. Maybe just desks in general are now really quite redundant. Because actually, if you do want to sit at a desk and look at your laptop, you're probably going to want to be doing that from home, not really traveling into London, um, the expense, the time, the energy. So then just go and sit and look at an email stream at everybody else. Yeah. Uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I think lots of things are going to change, hopefully for the better. But I do think there is this desire for physical spaces, whether they are physical retail spaces, as in a place I go to buy something. Yeah. John Lewis has always been very, very good at the knowledge of partners. So the partners are the people who work there. They, are, they aren't just employees. They're all, all of their salaries are based on the, um, the effectiveness of the company, right? That's why they call them partners. So those people, it's in their best interest to have a good customer relationship. Um, and that is why lots of people do and still go to John Lewis to get the information that they need about whatever it is they're buying. There will always be a need for that, I think. Whether you buy it at that point or not, or whether you just go there to seek the advice. And I've, I've been chatting to other people about you know, high-end retail experiences, whether that's Sonos, for example, if I'm going to spend a lot of money on a sound system, I probably want to go and listen to what it actually sounds like. Yeah. Therefore, you probably need to go somewhere and actually hear what the thing is. Is that a retail space? Is it more of an experience space? 
I think going and seeing something, holding it, seeing it, touching it for real will always be necessary. I think the question is whether that is the high street, whether that whether they are shops or not. It's interesting. We did this little, um, we did a bit of an experiment in terms of trying to work out what the high street actually was. And actually, it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that the high street's been a retail-only environment. It didn't used to be like that. There used to be libraries and many more places that you go to just socialise or to interact or to see people. And I think that's probably what the future of those spaces are, which is not just all based around buying. Yeah, I, I, I'm really happy you raised that point because that was you. It was one of the moments where you articulated something that I was trying to put together in my my mind, and that was exactly it. We found through COVID that we're all we 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 are a social species. We're desperate for the company of others, and I never thought about that idea about um, spaces not being retail spaces not necessarily being for the transaction, but actually being an extension of the brand building experience, an extension of the advertising. So that's, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Have you seen any plans for working that out with any of your current or, or previous clients? I think, well, look, I, I mean, I've seen glimpses of it. You, you go to like a Harrods or a Liberties or a Selfridges, I'd argue that they're not necessarily transaction environments. You go there because of the app atmosphere and the things you see and the way in which you see it. So I don't necessarily know that this is a new thing, but I think it's something that will become um, much more popular. Um, it's like I, the Apple store have been rolling out for years. Exactly, exactly. But then you look at the most progressive companies in the world, the Twitters, the Googles, the Facebooks, you go to their offices, they don't really have banks and banks of desks. They'll have an auditorium and a breakout suite and sofas and little pods where you can do calls. So, that, to me, is what it looks like in the future. Less banks and banks of um, emails. I think we will look back to the time before COVID and go, remember when we all used to pack on trains every single day to go and stare at screens? Yes. And I think we, in advertising, I think we were in one of those industries where you'd argue it was never really going to change. You were, you know, it takes something big like this, I think, to change perceptions. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. This is, And this is a point I, I've spoken a couple of times to Rory Sutherland, and he is good at taking the abstract view and seeing, you know, what's going on under the surface. And, you know, you might say as an example, the, uh, you know, the, the way that schools operate were clearly to imitate a manufacturing environment. There are bells when things stop, there are bells when things starts, everyone lines up. And so you might, one of the things that Rory was pointing out to me was that for many years, what people were doing uh, or have been doing is taking their laptop from home taking it to the office and then sending emails on that same laptop and then taking it home to replicate the typewriter telephone setup. Yeah. It's bizarre when you think about it. Yeah. I think, it, you know, I know a lot of bad has happened, um, but I hope good things will come as a result of it. I really do. Because I think it's um, a lot of things needed to change. Yeah. Um, I actually, bizarrely, I know this might sound negative, but a, a creative um, has just resigned. Um, and I asked why, and he said, it's, this has just really made me think. I'm now thinking, I've not seen my mum in two years. I, um, I am unhappy, I'm unhealthy, and I want to sort out the simple things in life. And it's been, it's been this kind of thing that's, that's allowed him to reflect on that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will be doing it. I really do. Um, I think we'll see a lot of new businesses start up. Um, how many of them will still be around in a year's time? We'll see. But um, I think people are really evaluating what their world looks like, which I think is necessary. Speaking of startups, I know that there's some um, 
that you were quite close to them by comparison to most people. So I don't know how comfortable you are to comment uh, freely about it. But I just wanted to know what you think about new commercial arts and what you know you see of their prospects and their potential. Because obviously it's two huge hitters, you know, industry-wide and just picked up two massive accounts in their first year, Halifax and Vodafone. So is that just a testament to their new business skills or their existing relationships? Or I mean, I know them well. And to your point, don't know how much I should say, but they are <laughs> fiercely smart, incredibly well, incredibly driven, very competitive. Um, and people that I've got an enormous amount of respect for. I almost don't see a world in which they do fail. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> because, I've, because I've been in the room when I've seen them pitching. And yes, I know it's not the four founders, it's just James and Deej, but um, to see those minds in action is, if you sit there and put yourselves in the client's shoes, you just sit there and go, well, it's obviously a no-brainer. <laughs> is, that, is, it, is it like a real-life version of, you know, when people watch the Don Draper pitch in Mad Men and he's meant to be this kind of wizard of pitching? Is it, is it like watching that? Yeah, but it's not all bells and whistles for no reason. Everything's built from substance, right? And you have DG going, these are the numbers and these are the insights. This is why you should be doing it. And then you have James saying, I'm going to make sure everything's okay. And when it was Ben Priest, he was saying, look how great it's going to look. And then John Forsyth was, uh, would sit there with the innovation and um, it's just a full service. Um, so very formidable. I wish them all the best. Uh, they're, you know, they're good. I've learned a huge amount from from all of them, but those two in particular. Uh, I wish them all of the best. And um, it's quite scary to know that that competition's out there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you can tell um, a confident pitch uh, from a what would you say? Do you feel like you can tell when, as an agency or as you know the pitching team, you need the business and you don't want to seem desperate for want of a better word? I don't know if it's about needing the business, but I think you know, and I think the clients know, if you believe in the work you're about to present or not. Yes. I think that's very clear. So I think you can walk in the room absolutely brimming with confidence and excitement because you just can't wait to show them what you've got. Or you can walk into the room not sure about what you've got. And I think that's very, very obvious. Yeah. Um, I think everybody wants the new business. So I think everybody is, is equally as nervous and, and, and wants it. But um, that's something we've been actually um, talking about in terms of the adrenaline of going into a pitch was always really, really, um, when, you're, when you're there in person and the clients arrive and everyone's wearing the smart clothes and, you know, the office and the work is all set out nicely, the adrenaline just comes. And what's interesting when you're pitching through Teams or Zoom, um, the adrenaline's different and trying to amp yourself up in the same way is uh, tricky. Hopefully it won't be that much longer and we can get back to doing it in person. But uh, Yeah. Fingers very tightly crossed. You said changing tack slightly. You said something uh, interested me. Uh, and um, you said, if you want to know what the future looks like, uh, look at a Japanese teenager. I may have misquoted that slightly, but I, I think I got it. What, what do you mean by that? It was actually said to me by Gordon Bowen. So he's the Bowen of McGarry Bowen, which is the, uh, the comm side of Densu. Um, and he was talking about the Japanese heritage of, of Dentsu. And what he's basically saying is it's absolutely fascinating. And I still haven't been to Japan. It's one of the places I haven't been. And it's, um, it's on my list. And hopefully now I'm working with Dentsu, it will, it will happen. But his, his basic um, observation was Tokyo is the future. Whatever the kids are doing there is basically going to come here in 10 years' time. He then talks about how the US is about five years behind Europe. 
so he's about 15 years behind. Um, but he just said, what better way than to have a kind of 45-story building with a floor full of creatives in Tokyo that basically know what the future looks like. And what's fascinating about Dentsu in Tokyo is it's not just a comms agency. They are media, they're technology. Um, they're not just um, putting, helping put on the Olympic Games. They're actually doing the creative for the opening ceremony and the infrastructure all around it. So they are in everything. And I think that, that's what fascinates me because in a way, I don't necessarily feel like I'm working for a comms agency or a comms company, but it's actually much more of a almost like a business solutions network, right? They go and they solve business problems, whatever those business problems look like. And I think that's what clients are now looking to create creative partners for. Not what is my TV spot, but what is this, what is the uh, creative answer to my business problem? Which I think is what the future of creativity and advertising really looks like. It's like if Saatchi's hadn't already nicked the idea for direct line, you could have used Harvey Keitel to propose. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you mentioned something that we've got about 10 minutes left here and you mentioned something that made me think about music because that's what we do all day, every day. Yeah. And you were talking about um, Europe being about five years ahead of the US. And it's you know it's, it's not scientific, it's not falsifiable, but there are times when that seems like it's definitely the case. And one example is punk rock. It felt like it touched down in London at about 75 and then didn't really make its way to Chicago, New York till about 80. Now, some people will say the Ramones, the Ramones. Okay, I get it. But um, a lot of the punk people, Black Flag and all the people I idolize, Steve Albini, a big hero of mine, are all 80s people. Um, why am I saying this? It's because we're actually talking about music. And I want to know what your musical radar is like. You know, what uh, record do you turn to when you need inspiration or has always been with you throughout your life? I don't know if it's specific tracks, but there's different, definitely different genres, I think, that I turn to at different moments, right? Because I just think, well, I, I'm, I grew up in the 90s and it was um, dance music in the 90s was just, I, I guess, is what I almost refer back to as um, just being what makes me the most happiness, uh, happy, I guess, because that's just, I was carefree and that's just what it was all about. But um, yeah, I mean, it depends what you're doing. If you're writing something, you need to be calm. If you're in the morning and you know you've got a lot to get through, you need something. I often uh, just listen to house music. I really do. And it, quite often in the mornings when you're kind of, you've got a lot that you really, you need the motivation from the music to kind of push you through. Other days I'll just sit there and go, I just fancy a bit of tears for tears. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I think some people almost pigeonhole themselves into a specific genre. I, de I definitely feel like I span quite a lot of that. But I think what's useful is when you do listen to lots of different things, I think it's easier to then have what are ultimately really, really subjective music uh, conversations around music when it comes to advertising. The, the, the joke when doing John Lewis, whether it's Christmas or not, is that you basically spend about three months making the ad and then three months deciding what music you're going to put on it. Yeah. And, and the director always has an opinion of what they think it's going to be from the very beginning, but always the client has, has an opinion. Then generally within the client group, there's about three or four differing opinions. Um, so if, I think if the one thing, having a wide range, I think is really useful because it allows you to then put yourselves in the shoes of other people, realize that there often is not just one answer, which I think is often really surprising. If there's one thing I've learned is the power of a mood film can help sell an idea, can help sell a vision or a dream for, for, for a campaign. And what I find fascinating is you can put two or three different tracks on the same story, the same pictures, and it feels entirely different. That's exactly right, yeah. 
it's so bizarre. Um, and so the power, I think, is incredible, should never be underestimated. One of the things that I learned really from my, from my days at Adam and Eve is just um, advertising is very easy to ignore, but it's very hard to ignore if something makes you feel something. Mm. Um, and that's what John Lewis have just done, right, for, for years and years now. You, you know, whether you go to the shop and buy it, you know that that piece of work is going to make you feel something. And so much of that is the music. Um, it really is. And, um, but in the, in the best possible sense, they've made, a journalist have made a, um, a, a model that I've taken generally historic tracks and reimagining them. So there's this lovely kind of analogy between um, past and future, which I really love. Um, and what's so bizarre is that it is like the Super Bowl in the way that the day it comes out, you're in the car the following day and it's being played on Radio One. Yeah. It's just such a, um, the, the, the catalyst of the work, just putting that music through the roof is just incredible. And then uh, in the one that I did, you know, you, we then go and record it with a, a full 52-piece orchestra. It's just uh, in, incredible to, to watch and to be a part of. And of uh, course, Dan, who is probably the, uh, the loveliest guy in pop music, isn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think he was recording from um, his little studio in, in LA at the time. <laughs> we had to get him to redo it about three or four times but um, oh, man. um no it was um yeah an incredible to be a part of really is um and you know the music on those particular campaigns i think is always um the thing that always elevates it and gives it that prestigious and it's expensive to do as well right to, to buy the rights for these tracks it's generally always the big players that do it because the licensing is just always so expensive um but yeah not, not one to be underestimated yeah, um, the, uh, I, the one of the the axes that we grind frequently is because you know we're composers, we are also supervisors, but we got into it for composition and supervision. You know, for a while, I was like, oh, it's just it's not really creative. It's just taking something that already exists and whacking it on. But when you start doing the search, uh, you know, as a supervisor, you experience the thrill of transforming the film with different tracks, and yeah. you want all of them. Yeah, and it is transformed, and it's very hard to do that. You know. You um, sometimes you get director's treatments in, and you go right. We've got a different person, different treatment, different way in. And a lot of the time, a lot of the treatments are very, very similar. But it's really so different with music because it can just instantly switch everything, um, which I think I think is a huge power. So yeah, I've got one more question about John Lewis before you go. And sure. it's, uh, you said three months making, three months music, but with the Elton John, surely the music was locked in from day one. Yeah, I mean that was one of the rare. The rare differences, I guess. I actually watched that one from the outside, so you need to speak to Rick and answer Mike if you wanted the detail on that. But um, yeah, that was the one where it was locked in. And mainly really because it's got those very, very specific scenes, right? So you're transferring from one to the other. So that was almost locked down to begin with, um, scene by scene. So that's, yeah, probably the one exception. <laughs> we, I love that one. We did an overdub of it, like a bad lip reading where we, you know, read all the voices and stuff. So that was a fun little job. But, uh, but yeah, um, I sense that, you know, we're, we're, time is pressing and we're, we're, we're coming up on the end. So um, I suppose, uh, I, I, well, I don't know. No, there's, no, there's no clinching question I can fit into this time. So I guess it's best of luck with these super demanding briefs you've got. Transform uh, them into, you know, uh, Famous brands, Days. Well, how do you pronounce it? Dazen, Dazen, Dazen. Right. Well, that's a brand problem, isn't it? <laughs> You'll know about it in five years, I reckon. I've no doubt. I really look forward to it, though. And uh, you know, let's speak again. We will be in London, that's for sure, before the end of the year. I really hope we get to come down and see you guys and see the deskless offices. Look forward to it. 
Cheers, Simon. Have a great day. Thank Thanks a lot.